In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I get into the book of the week from this past week, the book of the week for this week is How to Create a Mind by Ray Kurzweil. How to Create a Mind, The Secret of Human Thought Revealed. Again, another uh, judging a book by its cover and title or choosing a book by its title and cover. Uh, But looking forward to reading that and sharing that with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week that I'll talk about tonight is Unthinkable, An Extraordinary Journey Through the World's Strangest Brains by Helen Thompson. Very interesting book. So in this book, Helen Thompson uh, interviews nine different people who have some interesting experiences caused by brain abnormalities that we sometimes understand or don't quite understand, but all of them have some interesting stories to share. For example, it starts off with the story of Bob, who never forgets a memory or uh, what they call highly superior autobiographical memory, where he literally can remember any day of his life. You can just say um, February 4th, 1984, and then he would be able to tell you um, about what happened on that wonderful day. Um, And going on to other people, like I think it's Matar, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but he is someone who thinks he turns into a tiger, or when it happens, he really feels he's becoming a tiger. Uh, To other individuals who have different issues they are dealing with, And what's interesting about the book and what I like is she interviews them. And although even in the title has the world's strangest brains um, in a very humane way, trying to understand them on a deeper level. And I was hoping she would uh, just in reading the first few paragraphs of the book or what the book was about, pay homage to Oliver Sacks. And she definitely does in, in very nice ways, talks about him and how he did a similar thing. He would write books or write about and talk about various cases and individuals who are dealing with peculiar symptoms and issues, but he would always um, do it in a very humane way where you wouldn't just see the person as a disease or an abnormality. You'd see them as a full human being. And she mentions that earlier in the book and, and brings them up a few times throughout the book, but also that seems to be the method she chose in going to interview them oftentimes in their home when possible, um, trying to really see the person as a whole human being, not just someone who has a malfunctioning brain. And as she also mentions, I might uh, share this quote from near the end of the book um, about how as much as we're seeing how these people are different from what we consider normal or typical, you also learn a lot about yourself in the process and see they aren't so different or see ways that you are similar, which is something I've always experienced 
uh, even in uh, when I did a one-year internship at a psychiatric hospital, I remember um, at first feeling like some of the more severely ill patients were so different from me or from what I tend to consider normal, but then seeing that really they weren't so different and you learn a lot about yourself through them as well. Um, so as I mentioned, the book starts with the first individual, Bob, who uh, has this highly superior autobiographical memory, H-A-S-A-M, um, and really he doesn't forget a, a day that goes by in his life. Uh, and then she, she also talks about Helen Thompson in the book, the research of Elizabeth Loftus in that section, who showed us that as much as we think of our memory or we try to understand memory and think, well, if I have a memory of something, it must be true, we see how much more malleable our memory is than we might realize. And so Elizabeth Loftus has done some really interesting research. For example, um, creating a story help with the help of family members, telling someone, for example, they were lost in the mall one time, and it was this scary incident. And at first, the person doesn't have memory for this, but then if they come back in a week and you ask them about what happened, they'll have a full story about what happened even though there was, in fact, no incident to describe. Or, um, I don't know if she did it, but I know similar research where they photoshopped people in a hot air balloon as a child, and they say they don't remember it, but then you bring them back a week later, and they have a whole story about what happened that day. And so it seems like, um, related to the book Neurologic that I talked about a couple weeks ago, that the brain is trying to tell a story. And so whenever there's holes in the story, it fills it in the best way that it can. And sometimes that involves creating a false memory, not really realizing it's a false memory. But if something comes to mind and it can't understand it, it has to try to make sense of that. What I thought was interesting is that the author shared a story about Elizabeth Loftus, who does this research of inserting memories at times or showing that our memory is malleable. And she said how um, she was told that she always, her mother had died when she was young, I believe it was her mother, and she didn't know much about it, but they told her that she was the one who found the body. Um, so this uncle had told her that you found your mother's body, you were the first one. And then uh, after that, all these memories started flooding back to her until I think it was a few days later, her uh, brother told her actually their uncle had made a mistake and their aunt had found the body, not her. So amazingly, she had um, heard the story and because of that, imagined all these things about, okay, me discovering the body and it felt very real, but it turned out it wasn't true. So it's interesting that even she herself who does this kind of research is susceptible to that same type of uh, issue of not necessarily being able to always trust our memories or when we are told something, we see how the brain fills in those gaps. Um, so we saw Bob, and we might think it could be good to remember everything, but uh, although Bob was the person she interviewed in detail, she shared stories of other individuals who never forgot a day, but also for them it was more of a negative thing because they would remember a lot of the negative or sad events of life, which can make sense, which makes me think about how... Um, something like that. It could really depend on someone's disposition or maybe let's say if someone is depressed, that could change what they recollect or what comes to mind. I, want, I don't know if they've done research like that, but I could see how that would be the case. But there could be personality differences and also um, different states that people are in that might affect what types of memories come back. So we, we heard her his story, Bob and others like him, and then also individuals who are permanently lost. I remember actually having a conversation with my uh, uncle, dad, and also my cousin Farshid 
a couple weeks ago about this, about having a sense of direction and where you are. And my cousin Farshid actually is very good with that. I always trust him when it comes to being in a new place and what's the best way to get from point A to point B. But there's some people who can feel permanently lost. And so we hear the story of Sharon, who always feels that way. Um, and she learns that she does something she calls her Wonder Woman impression, that sometimes it feels like her world will flip all of a sudden. But if she does a few spins, somehow that puts things back in place. And so she'll have to find ways to do this. Even like she shares a story of going into a dressing room because she said it looks weird to just see a woman spinning in public, but she'll find a way to do that. And it usually can get the job done, but of course it leads to lots of problems. Even she still can't learn exactly where her house is, or she shares a story of when she, uh, her brother called her and said, come get him to take him to the emergency room. And she couldn't find his place, even though he was only a few blocks away from where she lived. And so we see the challenges she went through. Also, I believe it was her uh, who her mother told her, don't tell anyone about your secret. Or if it wasn't her, a lot of people you see in a similar way, they're very ashamed of what they're going through. Um, and so they never shared with someone. So she didn't share with anyone for a long time. And others in the book, you see the same thing. Or on the reverse, because we can only experience our own experience, some people that had very unique experiences thought everyone experiences these things. So they were surprised to find out that not everyone uh, has these qualities. For example, synesthesia is when people in a way can combine different senses. So for example, numbers will have a feeling associated with them or um, people can have a color, like maybe an aura. That's actually one of the chapters is about that. But synesthesia is the blending of different senses and people who experience this um, for example, words have sounds or music to them or colors or feelings uh, or colors have different numbers associated with them. They think everyone sees the world this way when in fact they don't. So sometimes it's not until they're older and somehow get confronted with this that they see that their experience is actually unique or not something that everyone does experience. So we see a lot of stories where people feel very ashamed of what they're going through or sometimes they finally meet a doctor, a neurologist, um, some kind of doctor who shares with them that actually what they're going through is something they've seen before, they understand, and that can be so uh, comforting to them that I'm not crazy, or I'm not the only one, or it's not something just wrong with me, or I'm not evil. That's what some people were told, for example, that you're, people will think you're a witch if you share with them what you're going through. And it's so sad to see that yet another way where we make people feel bad for just being born a certain way or having some type of difference. Even I'm left-handed, and sometimes in previous generations, previous cultures, uh, or other cultures, sometimes even still, they thought that being left-handed might mean you're evil uh, or other negative things. So that's why you'd see them try to force left-handed children to become right-handed, which led to some people becoming ambidextrous or um, losing that preference for that left hand. But so we see how people suffer so often because they think something about them is wrong or bad or something they should be ashamed of or something evil, when in fact it's just the way they were born and it might be different from some other people, but does it make them bad in any type of way? Um, we also see people who have uh, permanent hallucinations. Um, so when people are blind, they often can experience what is called Charles Bonnet syndrome, where they have visual hallucinations. And the exact reason is not clear. It seems maybe there's inactivity and the brain fills in that space because we see that happen. 
uh, similar to what I was saying about the neurologic that we have, um, or just the brain is constantly firing and interprets those firings in different ways. Um, but there's a woman who is deaf or mostly deaf, and she hears things all the time. Um, she lost her hearing later in age, but she'll hear certain songs or certain melodies in her head almost all of the time, which, as you can imagine, is quite annoying, but she has learned to live with it in some ways. But in that chapter, Helen Thompson discusses how really we're almost always hallucinating all the time. We think we are just seeing the world outside in some reality, but really there's a lot more going on than that. Oftentimes our brain is making a prediction of what's out there and really just noticing when there's a difference, not really seeing everything or hearing everything the way that we think we are. So as much as we might think of hallucination as something that only quote-unquote crazy people are doing, we actually see that most of us are hallucinating one way or the other, or that many people experience more severe hallucinations at some point, even if it's just one time, more than you would think. Um, there's also a case of someone who has what's called Cotard syndrome, I believe. I don't know if it's syndrome, but it's people who think they are dead, which is really sounds strange, but they actually think they're not alive and they're convinced of it. And I don't want to get into it, really, I don't remember the exact um, parts of the brain. I think the insula was involved with that experience of feeling unreal or uh, feeling dead. Um, but it's really strange that someone can think and they can talk, but they th are convinced that they are dead. And even because of that, they can somehow, sometimes have a reduced appetite. They might be forced to eat. They think they're dead. So what's the point of eating? So they actually don't even ask for food. But um, it's quite interesting and fascinating. And we see uh, how, although we might think that the brain is always working for both of us well, or we think it's we take it for granted how well it works, we see how easily much of what we do easily or we don't even think about um, actually does take some things going right to make that happen. It could actually make us feel very grateful for when we do have the functions that we take for granted every day. I um, wanted to share a few quotes at the end. Um, you know, she talked about consciousness also in the book and how that's considered, I think, it's the hard problem or hard question when it comes to neuroscience to understand what is consciousness or what gives us consciousness because we still don't know. And she shares actually um, a quote from someone else who is a professor of hers, Helen Thompson, the author, that says, if the brain were so simple that we could understand it, we would be so simple that we couldn't which I thought was a very interesting uh, way of putting that and very insightful, that this brain that we're trying to understand and understand how it works um, is so complicated, and because of that, it's going to be hard for us to understand that. If it was so easy to understand, we probably wouldn't be smart enough to understand it. Uh, so because we're so, in a way, intelligent or smart or have these capabilities, the machinery that allows for us to do that is very complicated, so it's not going to be easy to figure out. Um, but I did want to share, as I mentioned, uh, a, a few sentences or a sentence from her at the end of the book sharing that mindset that we look at these people not as some aberrations that they're weird or crazy um, or just bizarre but recognizing the humanity in them so she says the people who feature in this book are extraordinary but my hope is that you have marveled at their humanity rather than their eccentricity that you have been surprised at the things we have in common rather than the ways we are different. So even when you hear of someone who's dealing with something that seems so bizarre and strange to you, in this case, people with some 
um, brain abnormalities or different things that cause them to have some types of thoughts or beliefs that might seem very bizarre and hard for us to comprehend, to realize they are human like you and me. And actually, when you hear their stories, you see how much more they are like you and me and how much they can actually teach us about the ways our brains work, not just how their brains work differently and how your brain might be more like them than you realize. Um, and so whatever that difference is that we see in others, recognizing that humanity, I think, is always important. But I like that she added that type of sentiment at the end and throughout the book of seeing the humanity and the individuals she discusses uh, and interviewed for this book. Um, I, I really like that touch. And I think, uh, obviously, I can't speak on behalf of Oliver Sacks, but to me, it seems like something he would be proud of and appreciate that she had that mindset for the book. So that was unthinkable an extraordinary journey to the world's strangest brains by Helen Thompson. Um, highly recommend the book. Very interesting one. All right. That takes us to our first commercial break. Studio number three, one zero four, four, one zero five, five, five. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Wanted to switch gears a bit, uh, and talk about the criminal justice system and punishment and uh, what I think are some things to just think about. I'm definitely not an expert on this field, but from a psychological perspective, some thoughts on that. And really what uh, served as the motivation for this segment was over the weekend, I went to the uh, Twin Towers jails in downtown Los Angeles with Parsa Pekar, who you've maybe seen a couple times on the show, um, and got to see some of the inmates a few of them I've built relationships with, uh, two of them in particular, uh, Craig and Adrian. Um, got to see them again and spend some time talking to them. And um, it always brings up a lot of different feelings and thoughts when I'm there and then off afterwards thinking about the experience. And so it, it made me think about it. We talked about this while we were there with them a little bit. This uh, idea about what is the purpose of having the prison system and criminal justice in general. And so there's a, I'm not a legal scholar either to get into all of that, but I do think, of course, we have to have some method of making and holding people accountable and having punishment in order for people to have a sense of justice. If there's a justice system, people should feel that if they were hurt by someone, there is some way of feeling um, there is some justice. So I'm not saying that no one should have any punishments, but we do have to think about what we're doing by punishing or what our intention is. And for many people, or if we look at the United States in particular, uh, the system is very much one about punishment. It's not about, to me, figuring out the best outcome possible based on what has happened or what is going on. It's just finding a way to punish because that makes us feel good, that there are these bad people that did bad things and so bad things should happen to them and that makes everything good and okay uh, but it's much more complicated than that to me it's much less black and white and we're dealing with much more gray and we have to look at what is the intention of what we are doing to begin with we know that in psychology in general if you look at behavior research punishment is very uh, a very bad way of trying to get a behavior to stop or to get someone to do something, punishment is not really as helpful. Thorndike, who was one of the fathers of behaviorism, or he was involved in research, he first had this rule 
that was that if you reinforce things, that makes those things more likely to happen. If you punish behaviors, those behaviors become less likely to happen. But then he soon realized that the punishment side didn't seem to work very well, especially not for long-term effects. And so the reinforcement side can be more helpful, and that, of course, is complex too. It's not just straightforward. But the punishment side, it seems that punishment does not really work. Or even things like the death penalty research, most research shows it doesn't really work in preventing murder, that when people are going to kill someone, um, the presence or absence of a death penalty in that state or area doesn't seem to have much of an impact. So we see that punishment doesn't have such a strong effect of deterring crime or leading to good behavior. Uh, So if we just think that's going to be what's going to stop people. And that makes sense because usually when people make a decision, they do think about the punishment, but they're not really in that mindset of evaluating all of the different options. So yes, I think there needs to be punishments and we can't just allow for people to do very bad things and have no consequences. But I think we have to look at those consequences because what we have is a lot of people who are being treated as second-class citizens and even actually last night I saw a piece on last week tonight with John Oliver about um, prison labor and how really it's not that different from slavery. And actually he talked about how in the Constitution, when slavery was abolished here in the United States, it says there was an exception there except for as a form of punishment. It was something like that, the language that basically saying that if someone is in incarcerated, that's the way it's being used now, you can have them work for nothing or near nothing, which is what is often the case. And and I think that's unfortunate. I think there is definitely an us-them when it comes to dealing with prisoners or people who have been convicted of crimes um, that always, I think, is a problem when we have an us-them. And as always, when we're exposed and interact with people from any group, those walls between the us and them start to crumble. Definitely something I've experienced in in communicating, talking to um, the people that I've met down at the jail is that you see whole human beings that have done something they maybe strongly regret uh, and feel bad about, but still human beings, and I've done things I regret and don't feel good about. Not to compare and say everything is the same, but to recognize, again, that humanity I was talking about in the previous segment that we all have. Um, And so... I think if we have a us-them mentality, as many people do, it's these hardened criminals, these evil people that we have to punish and keep off the streets. And as always, when we dehumanize any group, uh, it allows for us to treat them in any way because we think it's okay to treat someone, something, even it can feel like, that's less than human in an inhumane way. They don't even deserve human rights or that type of treatment. But I think we have to face the reality that these are people and also that uh, the system that is contributing to crime is also the bigger issue than just these individuals. If we look at the connections between race and poverty and crime, we see that poverty especially plays a big part in what's going on. So if we don't look at that part of the whole system and just try to blame individuals, it's an easy way to place the blame on individuals for something that's wrong with the whole system. So I think that's a problem. But also what we do is we punish these people. We hurt individuals who are in jail um, and we hurt them, but also we make it worse for society because what we see happens is that people who come out of jail here in the United States have a very hard time getting their lives together because of being convicted um, felons, if that's the case, because it's harder to get a job, it's harder to get uh, 
employment, get residence, all those types of things become more challenging. And because of the punishment they've received and the way they've been treated while they've been incarcerated, their anger towards society, if there was some before, if anything, it's only going to grow or become worse. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see high recidivism rates where people commit crimes again and go back to jail. So uh, I know it's very easy to say what's wrong about something and not have solutions. And I don't necessarily have some easy solutions, but I think it's definitely worth looking at what's going on and what we're doing and also the ways we think about these things. So we tend to think of people who have committed crimes, especially committed more serious crimes as all bad people who are evil. And it's very easy to just write them off completely, but it's not that simple. Uh, we see that it's much more complicated than that. Uh, so I think we need to reevaluate what we're doing because to me, there's an opportunity for much more of a win-win. If we see how people who are uh, being punished for their crimes, paying their time for what they have done, um, that just making it more hurtful to them doesn't really help us. And even just a, a thought on the death penalty, uh, I'm very much against that because I don't think that as a society, we should be killing people. That, that is good for the society to carry out that process. If we're saying killing is wrong, um, then I don't think we can kill our, uh, ourselves and say that somehow now it's okay. So I'm not okay with um, the death penalty. Again, it doesn't seem to work as a deterrent anyway. Uh, so to me, it's not the right direction for a society to go to kill people. Uh, and I think we should really think about that. Um, but we have people who are in jail, and unfortunately in the United States, we, we have the highest proportion of any developed country when you look at the numbers of people that are behind bars and incarcerated. And there is definitely a, a prison industrial complex where people are making lots of money from people being behind bars. And so um, people like that. There are some people that are benefiting from that, so they want there to be people to be behind bars. First, they get paid for them being there. Then also there's other people that are using their unpaid or very uh, small payment for the labor that they're producing. Even a clip last night, someone shared, or that was on the, the John Oliver show I mentioned, um, talked about that, how someone said, but when we let people go, then we lose their labor, which is really saying we're basically using them for their labor, which is definitely not the purpose of what should be the purpose of the justice system is to get free labor out of people. That really is a form of slavery and something that should not be acceptable. Um, so we have people behind bars and we think if we hurt them more, somehow it's better for us. But I don't see it that way. I think if they can be of somehow a benefit to society in a positive way, not just to use their work, that would be better for everyone. It's a win-win if they can contribute somehow, whether it's through even giving them education or giving them some way to help um, contribute, I think that is the better route than to continue to hurt them or think that's better. And so when we think about uh, this mindset of what makes things better, what leads to the better outcome, I was actually thinking about how what might be something that's missing in the justice system or I don't see it as as much is that when criminals even are convicted there's a lot we think about the punishment but really I think we should be focusing on reconciliation reconstruction trying to make a bad situation better so um, there is parts of corrections if someone is uh, making bad decisions and taking bad actions we should try to help them um, again because it's a win-win to recognize what's going on see what 
types of mental health treatment even might be necessary as often as the case. Drug addiction can be very much linked to crime as well. But the other part of the reconciliation piece is what if there's a way for the individual who has been convicted of the crime to try to make amends for what has happened or to apologize what has happened? In a way, we think of them going to jail as they're paying their price, which I can understand some part of that. But maybe there can be a more deliberate way of doing that. Uh, I think sometimes in sentencing, the families get involved if there's victims of the crime and they might actually make uh, a message that might make a more strict or lenient uh, sentence, both sides of the family, both the, the criminal at hand and also the, the victims. But what if there was some way of communicating that would involve reconciliation, even allowing for whoever has been convicted of the crime to apologize to the families or to try to make things right, whatever that might mean to them. Apologizing, um, supporting them in some way, of course, if the family wants any of this. But to me, this is more important than just punishment. Try to reconcile what has happened. When a wrong has been done, whether it's something minor or something major, one of the best ways to make things more right is to have a process of apologizing and reconciling and making amends for what has happened. Just punishing alone for punishment's sake to me is a very naked way, a very empty way of trying to deal with what is going on. But I was just struck by this notion that I don't think it's a big part of what happens is to allow for reconciliation, for allow for people who have made mistakes to try to apologize and to make things as right as they can. Oftentimes we can't take away how we have hurt someone, hurt society, or whatever we have done, whether it's small or big, um, but we can try to make things better. Uh, even when we have things like settlements, oftentimes families will receive millions of dollars for the loss of a loved one. And it's not that we actually think their loved one is worth $2.4 million and feel like now everything is right. Uh, no person would ever... Um, trade their family member for money. I mean, we would hope that's not the case, but really in these cases, that's not what's going on is that people are like, okay, you, my, my daughter was killed. If you give me this money, it'll feel even. But there's a sense of justice we get by them acknowledging and having to pay that price to us to make amends. And so maybe there's ways that individuals could do this, not always just with monetary settlements, but different ways of apologizing, talking to the families, communicating. Again, the families might want to have nothing to do with that individual, but it could be that that could be a process of forgiveness and making amends that might be better than just focusing on punishment. So those are just some thoughts on looking at our criminal justice system, looking at incarceration, especially here in the United States, something that is unfortunately all too common and we should think about what our intention is in having a justice system. If it's really about justice, we should try to make things more right rather than just focusing on punishment and hurting people more um, and thinking that somehow is going to make things better for everyone when really I don't think that's the case. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the last segment, I talked about some thoughts on the criminal justice system and how we should focus more, or at least include reconciliation in that process. And that that seems not to be 
really what we have. Really, we have a punishment system, not a justice system. And to me, that focus on justice would include that reconciliation piece. Now, another, in some ways, related topic, or to me, they can be related, is the concept of reparations that is becoming talked about more in the United States. So what that essentially is, um, is to make amends for slavery and what was done to African-Americans, blacks in the United States. At the end of slavery, there was this thought that there should be some form of reparations. Um, I was reading up on the, these, this um, idea of 40 acres and a mule, and I don't know if that was actually written in any kind of legislation or if that was an idea that was being talked about, but a way of paying back and making amends, giving some kind of reparation, some kind of payment of some kind to basically acknowledge the wrongdoing and to make up for what was done. As I mentioned in the last segment, if someone's child was killed, you're never going to make up for that by some form of money or some amount of money. It never can replace that. And similarly, slavery and what was done is never going to be erased. Um, but some acknowledgement can go a long way. And so people uh, are definitely talking about this more. It's great, gaining more political traction. And I don't want to get into a political debate, although I know this is a political issue, but just wanted to share some thoughts and again, share some of the psychological thoughts that come to my mind or from the psychological perspective about the issue. Um, I think that we should look into reparations, which means somehow as a form of apology and acknowledgement to the African-American community to make some form of retribution, some form of action to show that. Does that mean literally writing a check to each African-American in the United States? I'm not sure if that's the best way, but I, I know they're talking about having a committee to look into the issue. And I know in politics, things can be very slow. So they talk about it, then they talk about having a committee to look into it. Then they're going to talk about what that committee came up with. And then, you know, many more steps down the line, we'll see if anything actually does happen. But I think it's definitely worth looking into. And going back to what I was saying in the previous segment, because of this uh, notion of how important acknowledgement can be in wrongdoing. So scaling back um, infinitely, really, uh, thousands of times to show how the process of an apology and acknowledgement can be so helpful and, and healing, um, uh, you know, so I'm it's nothing compared to what I'm talking about now, but when you're driving, I've had this experience myself. If I'm driving and someone cuts me off and you can have a reaction to that. I know I do have a reaction to that usually, and it's not a very pleasant one. I can feel angry, feel like someone is threatening me. They're cutting me off. They're getting in front of me, all those bad feelings. But if they acknowledge it, which when you're driving, there's not a lot of ways to communicate, especially positively, but if they somehow put their hand up or somehow, to me, that's the universal symbol of sorry, or that was my bad, or thanking you, but somehow it's a positive um, communication when you have all fingers, five fingers up, rather than when you just have one of them up, which is a negative one. But that usually is somehow acknowledging that was my mistake. I did something wrong. It actually just happened the other day to me on the freeway. Someone did a very dangerous, and I'm almost positive she didn't see me, uh, lane change and got right in front of me, and I honked and had to slow down. And then when I caught up to her and... Um, she looked over, she just gave me a very, uh, looked like sincere apology of like, you know, that I'm sorry, I didn't see you. 
Uh, that's what I gathered in the fraction of a second, but I felt much better. I was calm. If on the other hand, she had given me a look like I don't care, or if she was mad at me, I'm sure I would have got even more angry. I would have been more upset, but just her acknowledging that she made a mistake made me feel fine. And actually I no longer felt angry and I went on my way. Um, and so again, as I said, that's uh, infinitely smaller than what we're talking about here, but just illustrates how significant acknowledgement can be. And we see this in fights as well. Someone says something you don't like, let's say it's your romantic partner, a loved one, and you say, I didn't like that. If they say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't like, you didn't like that, or I can see how you didn't like that. I apologize for that. And maybe depending on how significant it was, you can talk about it more. That can help you feel much better. But if they say, I don't know what you're talking about, or why do you want to keep talking about this? Or that was nothing. I didn't do anything wrong. You probably are to get more angry. So looking now at what happened in the United States, slavery was this very horrible thing, incredibly, of course, inhumane and, um, really a stain on the history of the United States. And for that reason, I think people oftentimes don't want to talk about it because it's this negative thing that happened, they can say, a long time ago. But, you know, the effects of it are not um, a long time ago. They're still here. But they don't want to look at that. And so they feel like when people bring it up, it's something um, negative and they will say it's not even worth talking about because of how long ago it was. Everything is fine now. We haven't had slavery for a hundred, what, 50 years or so. So we, we shouldn't care anymore or have to talk about it at all. It's meaningless. But that's not the case. I won't get into all the history. One, because I don't have time. And two, because I don't know it all very well. But we know that even after slavery, there was even systematic racism in the country that really does continue to this day. But it was even more blatant before with Jim Crow laws and, and the like. And so we know that it wasn't just that slavery ended and everything was easy for African-Americans in this country. So the consequences of slavery continued, not just because of how severe the, um, the blow was of slavery, but also because afterwards things continued to be problematic for African-Americans due to even laws, things that were in the books, not just racism and how people thought or acted. So we see that there is the very significant effect of what happened, and this does leave uh, an emotional trauma on the individuals who suffered and the people who are their descendants. And so what I think would be good for the United States to do is to very wholeheartedly acknowledge what has happened. Not that Americans deny slavery or very few would actually deny that it happened, but really acknowledge it as in taking it all in. And again, looking at relationships, sometimes someone does something that hurts another person. They kind of know, but they don't want to talk about it because it doesn't feel good to talk about it, to face that bad thing they did. And so they think, well, we'll just forget about it and move forward. And they, as I was talking about earlier, might even get mad at you for bringing it up, which is what we're seeing now in the United States. So we have to acknowledge what has happened um, and make that very clear. And a very good way to do that is also to then try to make amends. And to me, that's what reparations would be. And there is the format of paying a sum of money to each individual, a way of expressing that. I think that is part of what has happened in uh, Germany with what happened after World War II, that there was money that was given to Jewish families who uh, were affected by what happened in the 
the Holocaust. Um, and I think that was a very good decision or move. I don't know all the details about it, but I heard a bit about that. I think that's a, a good model potentially for what we could do here, that we want to show that we there was something done and to try to make it right. I think also to me, and I, I know there'll be a, a committee to look into this and people have their opinions, but to me, it's not just about giving a sum of money, that could be one step, but really looking at the more systemic issues, how there is still racism in the country in a systematic fashion. That to me would be addressing more of the problem. Because if we look at uh, making amends and so i'm you know doing some microcosms to this macrocosm but when you have an apology if someone apologizes to you what we want to do is first they should try to make amends which is first acknowledge and then try to make things right but also it's trying to make sure that whatever they did that hurt us they don't hurt us in that way again or we don't have to feel that pain anymore and so in the case of slavery we'd have to look at all the consequences of really what happened because of slavery and try to eliminate those or at least reduce them and with the aim of eliminating those differences, those challenges, those setbacks that people of color face in this country, that to me would be part of an apology. Because if you just say, I'm sorry, um, good luck, that's not really an apology. An apology is, I'm sorry, I can see how what I've done has hurt you. Of course, in this case, it's very clear, but also I want to make it right. It doesn't just end with, I'm sorry if I hurt you, we have to make that right. And I think that would go a long way in healing um, the pain that was caused. Uh, it won't ever take it away. We'll never erase slavery, but we can reduce the negative harm that it has caused to African Americans and continues to cause, and also the strain it has continued to cause in the United States. Because we can hope that racism is over, we talk about a post-racial America because we had a black president in Barack Obama. So a lot of people say, well, with that racism died, but that's definitely not the case. Unfortunately, racism is alive and well in the United States and we can try to ignore it because that might feel better, but it doesn't mean the pain and the consequences will go away. So we have to face it head on and realize there still is a lot of racism in America. There still is racism in each and every one of us that we have to acknowledge. But in the bigger scale, we see that it's still there. And so to turn our backs on that, I think, would be the wrong way to go. And so if you're not sure about this issue, I'd also be open to hearing people's thoughts. I don't want everyone to agree with me. So I want to hear how you might see things differently. But I wanted to share some of my thoughts on this issue because I think this could go a long way in healing uh, America and seeing that if we want to ignore pain, ignore wrongdoing, and just say everything is okay, that's a problem. And going back to the microcosm, I see people do this as individuals and families do this. A family member, a child will come forward and say they were sexually abused by another family member, and so often they'll just be swept under the rug. Or even worse, they'll blame the victim or say they're lying, even... Uh, abuse them physically for making up this story or for bringing this thing up or blaming them if anything did happen. And that denial and avoidance only perpetuates that pain and creates even more pain and suffering in the family. And I happen, see it happen time and time again, that unfortunately our reaction sometimes to something very bad happening is that we don't really know how to deal with it. So we try to deal with it by not dealing with it or by um, somehow blaming the bad thing that happened on the person who was the victim of the bad thing. And I hope we will not go towards that and we'll go towards healing, 
which to me always involves acknowledgement, reconciliation, making amends, trying to make things right. Uh, and I hope we will we'll get to that point where we move towards that because we see that people are still suffering. And in the United States, although we might think that the laws are fair for everyone, it's a free country, but it's not a free country for all. And so uh, I'm happy to hear that reparations is becoming more a conversation that we are having. Uh, and sometimes people can see this as a pure political ploy by some people. But to me, it's more about a human rights issue and a healing issue. That if we don't look at the ways that people have been caused to suffer by things that happen in this country and continue to happen, it will continue to have negative effects. So I'm glad to see that we're looking into it. I'm hoping that we'll explore avenues because to me the solution won't be just in writing checks to people. Um, that could be one part of a solution. I think actually it could be good in a way of saying we are sorry and again it won't ever repay what actually was the damage caused but will be one step of acknowledgement that itself can be valuable and give people a sense of justice, a sense of peace and a sense of healing. But we also have to look at the bigger issues in this country and how not, although we'd like to think everyone has an equal opportunity, that definitely is not the case. Um, issues like race and poverty play a big and interconnected role in making it so that not everyone can live the American dream or has equal access to that American dream. Um, so I hope we will continue to work towards healing rather than denying what is happening and work towards reconciliation rather than avoidance of the pain that has been caused. All right, we're getting to the end of tonight's show. I want to thank uh, listeners who have sent me a lot of book requests in the last couple of weeks, actually. And oftentimes I don't get a chance to respond and uh, because I get sometimes several in a week or many of them. I don't always get to respond to you, but just know I do take note of them and maybe they will be books of the week in the near future. So thank you for those requests. And let me again announce the book of the week for this week. It is How to Create a Mind, The Secret of Human Thought Revealed by Ray Kurzweil. That's How to Create a Mind, The Secret of Human Thought Revealed. And the author is Ray Kurtzwell. I uh, also wanted to thank Amir, who's here in the studio. He actually was not feeling well tonight, and he um, he's always a, a diligent and hard worker, and he made sure to make it th through the end of tonight's show, and as always, uh, makes me sound even better than I am. So thank you, Amir John, for taking care of me, and hopefully you'll feel better soon. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thank you, everyone, who's listening out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.